Hello, I'm Chris Loney, the editor of CityWire Selector. In this edition of CityWire Selector Meets, we are joined by the former governor of the Bank of England, Sir Mervyn King. Central bankers have rarely been under greater scrutiny, so what does a former holder of the hot seat think about current policies, quantitative tightening, and even more innovative ideas such as yield curve control? In this podcast, Sir Mervyn talks us through how he thinks the Bank of England can navigate the world of changing policy in the face of rising inflation and the intellectual mistakes that can lead to missteps. We also touch upon how he would tackle meaningful banking regulation and how the likes of Silicon Valley Bank's implosion show the financial sector will always find new ways to cause problems. Finally, we segue into another world in need of meaningful financial regulation, that is football, and how the sudden surge in Saudi Arabian money in an already rich ecosystem can be addressed. This conversation picks up directly with Sir Mervyn following on from a question about whether the Bank of England is pushing the UK closer to the brink of recession and what, if anything, it can do to change course. And here we go. Well, the main objective of the Bank of England has to be to bring inflation back to the 2% target. Not immediately, but over a reasonable period. And having lost control of inflation in 2020, went up sharply in 21. I think, first of all, we should know that all central banks made the same mistake. This is not a mistake of the Bank of England or individuals in the Bank of England. In my view, it's a mistake, an intellectual mistake of the economics profession as a whole, which thought that it could explain inflation entirely in terms of the credibility of the central bank commitment to the inflation target. In other words, central banks said inflation will stay close to 2% because we say it will, and everyone will believe that. That's an odd thing to believe because what you're essentially saying is it doesn't really matter what's going on in the economy as long as we stick to our mantra that we are going to bring inflation back to 2%, that it will come back. And what happened in, I think, the decade running up to the events following the pandemic was that the economics profession decided that money had nothing to do with inflation and that they could explain inflation entirely in terms of their own commitment to the target. But saying you're going to achieve something and actually achieving it are two very different things. You know, it is very like an Olympic high jumper who fails to clear the bar at, say, seven feet and then says, well, okay, raise the bar to eight feet, I'm determined. I'm really going to clear it this time. You need to have some mechanism for ensuring that people will believe you'll do it. And this, you know, nothing really happened in the last decade to upset this set of beliefs that inflation would stay close to 2% until the pandemic came and central banks decided that they could do quantitative easing, which essentially is printing money to an almost unlimited extent. And it will have no impact on inflation at all. This is very peculiar because, you know, 50, 60 years ago, textbooks would have said inflation comes when you have too much money chasing too few goods. And with the pandemic, we deliberately shut down parts of the economy. That gave us too few goods. And central banks printed lots of money. So we had too much money. And the result was inflation. Now, the interesting question that you now pose is where are we today in 2023? Because 2020, 2021, central banks printed too much money. 2022, I think they 
belatedly realized that they had created a mistake. In any event, they raised interest rates. This slowed down the demand for borrowing. Commercial banks were doing less lending. We didn't get very much money being printed. Central banks stopped doing QE and reversed that process. So in 2023, we're in a position now where the amount of money in the economy is not growing at all. And in the case of the United States, it's falling. This does threaten both recession and a sharp fall in inflation. So having ignored money on the way up, the risk is that by ignoring money on the way down, they may overdo the tightening of monetary policy. And that is a clear risk. I, I think it's impossible to, uh, like, to do that because we don't really know what the future holds. But there has to be now that central banks will be overdoing it. Well, that was going to be my question. I think it's, I appreciate that I might be oversimplifying, but what can they do then? Is it a matter of just slowing slightly? I mean, I, I remember speaking to someone earlier in the year and they said one of the problems with central banks is there isn't that time to step back and assess what worked and what didn't because it's a continual cycle and, and it's a high pressure position. I'm sure you'd know that more than anybody. But in terms of actually having the ability to assess what you've done and whether it worked or not, is there that potential? What can they do? Sorry, there's about 15 questions in there. Well, let me divide it into two. What they, first of all, what they should not do. What they should not do is to set policy by reference to the latest inflation number. And the reason is that we know that it takes monetary policy many months, maybe a year or two, possibly at times longer. These infamous long and variable lags between when you change interest rates or QE and its impact on inflation. And it, by looking at the latest inflation number, you're looking at the very last leg in that chain. It's a bit like steering a boat. If you've ever steered a, a, an eight-in rowing or even a bigger ship, you know that when you change the rudder, nothing happens immediately, but then things do happen. And if you wait until you see the front of the boat ship, you're going to be too late to correct things. And you'll be zigzagging all over the place. So they've got to have some view about the variables in the economy that will predict uh, where inflation is likely to go. And as I said, what's happening to the money supply is one of the earliest indicators you get, and it's not one to ignore. I don't think you can use it as a mechanical indicator, but certainly if it's growing very rapidly or if it's falling, you ought to be worried. And I think we've gone from one extreme to the other now, so there is some cause for concern. Why in central bank? do at this stage. Second question, well, I think this is not the moment to do a lot of quantitative tightening. Um, I think this is a moment to just let the balance sheet and central banks stay where they are and instead of focus on interest rates. They've raised interest rates a lot. We're back now to what I would call more normal levels of interest rates. I don't think we should expect to see dramatic falls from this point. Um, unless we get ourselves into a deep recession. But I, I, I think this is not the moment to be going on raising interest rates rapidly uh, if on, on the basis that inflation remains high. Uh, I think we just have to wait now to let it come back down. It was interesting, that first point, because you said about money supply, getting a hold of the indicators early enough. And I spoke to, I spoke to Mohammed Alerian in April, and one thing we focused on a lot was uh, timeframes. And this idea that the world as a whole has become much more short-term focused. It's very much the next quarter, the next meeting. 
and and it's harder to do those longer term projections. Would you agree with that? Is that something that worries you that we are very much even from your time as being governor? Do you think timeframes are now much tighter than they were? They were, but I think partly it's an intellectual mistake. I mean, if you think that inflation has nothing to do with money and it's entirely to do with what people think and believe, you can start to persuade yourself that those beliefs can turn on a on a sixpence and change very quickly. Uh, and so you can bring down inflation or, or stoke it up very quickly. I think that's an exaggeration. I think it takes time for these things to be through the economy. And yeah. inflation is a fall in the value of money. So it's very peculiar to think that the amount of money in the economy has nothing to do with inflation. You don't have to believe that you need a, a rule that says money should be growing at X percent. That's that's going to one extreme, and that's that's not sensible. We abandon that. But it doesn't mean to say that you just erase the word money altogether from your analysis of what's going on in the economy. And yet, if you were to look at central bank publications today, you would think that they had erased money from the vocabulary of economics. Well, that, that does lead into a point that I was very interested in, because I speak to a lot of bond managers, and they're much more than equity managers focus on what the central banks literally say. And we are down to sort of picking words out of transcripts and, and pauses and breaths are being overanalyzed. Do you, is that cause for concern? Yes, I think it is. I don't know that it's particularly new. I remember that uh, when the European Central Bank got going, that uh, when Jean-Claude Trichet was there, he would um, you know, talk about the next meeting and the central bank policy-making body was vigilant or it was and uh, extra vigilant. Uh, and these two phrases meant different things, trying to announce what the next month's decision would be. This is far too clever and by half, and you just need to keep it simple. Central banks gain credibility largely, I think, because they have a plausible narrative about where the economy is going, which they update from quarter to quarter. And people accept that no one, even the central bank, cannot predict the future. But nevertheless, they can analyze what's going on now. They can identify risks and they can mitigate against, take measures to mitigate those risks. Um, but if unexpected things happen, people don't blame central banks. What they do want is central banks to have a clear narrative or a story about why they think inflation may or may not develop and a very clear commitment to dealing with it if those signals of future inflation arise. In terms of doing things differently, if we could get onto the Bank of Japan and their yield curve control, as somebody who's done this and been at the forefront of that, what do you make of that? And as they seek to unravel it, are there potential ramifications for the bond market? Well, I talked earlier about the economics profession having led central banks uh, into a cul-de-sac by pursuing the idea that money had nothing to do with inflation. Mm and that expectations were the only thing that ever mattered. And the trouble with that is it also led to practical cul-de-sacs too. Forward guidance was one. We can't predict the future, so it makes no sense to try and predict what you yourself may choose to set interest rates up six months ahead, let alone three years ahead, which central banks have been doing. But yield curve control is another example of something that makes no sense for an independent central bank. Uh, essentially, if you say, well, we'll keep the 10-year bond yield close to some pre-announced number, you're handing 
the setting of monetary policy directly back to the finance ministry, because they can issue more or less bonds as they wish, and the central bank has to respond by setting the market rate for that to the pre-announced number. So the influence on monetary policy comes directly from the finance ministry. This is a mistake. And the best way to see this is that after the Second World War, the Federal Reserve and the United States Treasury found themselves in a position which they'd adopted during the Second World War, which was that the Federal Reserve would keep the yield of government bonds constant at some stable low level. Uh, that was yield curve control. And as time moved on, as we came out of the Second World War, the Federal Reserve realized this meant they had no control over monetary policy, and therefore they could not prevent a rise in inflation. This came to a head with the Korean War, and there was a big battle between the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury, and eventually the Federal Reserve won. There was an, a famous accord signed in the early 50s by the Treasury and the Fed, which permitted the Federal Reserve to move short-term interest rates around to control inflation, and the market would then determine where the 10-year bond yield went. And that was the way in which an independent Federal Reserve could control inflation. And without that, people like Paul Volcker later on could never have controlled inflation. So we know from history that if you try to adopt your curve control, it re-neuters the ability of an independent central bank to control inflation. And so it's madness to go down this road. And I'm quite convinced that the Bank of Japan will, in due course, in a careful, cautious manner, abandon yield curve control, as indeed the Reserve Bank of Australia did quite quickly after adopting it. And they'll go back to doing the traditional way of setting monetary policy, which is meeting by meeting, doing today what you think is necessary to control inflation in the future, giving a narrative which explains why you've taken your decision, saying that there were arguments doing something different, but on balance, the committee decided by a majority vote to adopt this position, and then you come back and revise that and review it at the next meeting. But trying to commit yourself to a future path for interest rates makes no sense. What you need to do is to commit yourself to doing whatever is necessary to control inflation. But what that turns out to be, we cannot know today. But you need to have that opportunity. You need to work in that mindset yeah. rather than be limited <clears throat> by your control. Absolutely. Can I move on slightly again? I, mean, I appreciate we're jumping around ever so slightly, but moving on to banking regulation and the op-ed you did for the Financial Times in May, I thought that was a fascinating read because banking sector has come to a lot of scrutiny this year, of course. We saw everything we saw in March with the US regional banks. Then we saw much more for our European audience, Credit Suisse and, and the challenges that were there. In terms of regulation, I mean, if I understood the piece correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the regulation is hugely reactive at the moment. The post-financial crisis world of banking regulation tried to reset, and now everything's being done ad hoc to an extent. But how can that change? Is there a way that they can reset regulation to a meaningful level, or will it continue to be this sort of piecemeal, sticking plaster type mentality? Well, that depends on the vision of those setting the regulations and their willingness to be imaginative. I think there is a better way through this. What we see after every crisis is you get masses of detailed regulation designed to prevent an exact repetition of the last crisis. That makes no sense because no two crises are ever quite the same. 
And we've now got an incredibly complex system of regulation, thousands, literally thousands and thousands of pages, which means that the people, most people working in banks cannot possibly know what the regulation is. It requires specialists to study these thousands and thousands of pages to do it. But what's the basic problem? The basic problem is that banks are very fragile. They have assets and liabilities on their balance sheet. The assets are primarily long-term and risky assets, loans to businesses, to households, financial securities they may own, which can go up and down in value. And their liabilities are very often short-term. They can be deposits, which are callable on demand. They can be short-term funding from hedge funds and other financial institutions where banks borrow for three months at the famous old rate of the LIBOR rate. And the danger with all that, is, of course, is that if a rumor starts, or even if there's some evidence of reality that the bank is going to be in some difficulty, then the people who have lent to the bank short-term take their money away or stop lending. They don't roll over their lending. The bank can do nothing about this easily because the long-term assets it's got are long-term. They can't be liquidated quickly. And so even a good bank can find itself in serious difficulty or even essentially be, be forced into liquidation. So we need to find a way through that. In a crisis where people start to panic, um, they don't really know what value assets have, almost all financial markets can become illiquid. And the only source of liquidity in a financial crisis is the central bank. So what you need to recognize is that in a, in a crisis, the central bank will have to lend banks in order to see them through, tie them over this short-term loss of confidence in the banking system. But you do not want a system in which the amount of money which the central bank has to lend is completely unlimited. Because in that set of circumstances, back as they were in 2008, people feel this is not how a market economy is meant to work. The central bank is saying, we'll throw as much money at this problem as we need to, to solve it. But they don't do that for the automobile industry, the construction industry, or any other industry. So what there has to be is to convert this central bank lending into effectively an insurance scheme. And what you need to do is to introduce one rule and one rule only, which is to say that all banks or institutions to which central banks might think they have to provide liquidity one day. You look at the assets of this bank and you say, how much money would the central bank be willing to lend against those assets as collateral? So if the central bank had to take the assets from the bank as collateral in return for lending to the bank, they're not going to lend the full book value of the assets. If you've got loans to businesses which are on the books at say 100 million pounds, you may think, well, actually, so we can take these loans. We can wait for a long period. We don't have to force them to repay immediately. Central bank has a long time horizon, but we may only be willing to lend 80 million against the 100. But we'll take the collateral, confident that we know we can get 80 million back eventually. So we're willing to lend 80 million to the bank. And the rule is that the short-term liabilities which the bank can issue in the form of deposits or short-term borrowing can be no more than the 80 million or the money which the central bank is willing to lend against the collateral provided by the commercial bank. And if you did that, 
that everyone would know that since the central bank had imposed this rule, there's no way that the bank could run out of money because the central bank is pre-committing against the pre-committed collateral to lend as much money as would be needed to cover all the short-term liabilities of the bank. And so the, there, would, there would never be a successful bank run. The central bank would always provide the money to cover any money that disappeared to a bank run. And if you look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank early in 2023, what's very interesting is that many of the assets on their balance sheet were, were loans to venture capital companies and others. There has to be some risk involved. So there's no way that the central bank could sensibly be willing to lend all of its uh, balance sheet, all of its assets in cash to the to SVB. But if you looked at the liabilities of Silicon Valley Bank, almost all of them were in a form of short-term deposits or borrowing. So they were massively, they failed this rule completely. They would, ne- you know, the central bank could never have provided enough liquidity to cover the losses from depositors who disappeared from Silicon Valley Bank without incurring significant risk for taxpayers by having to lend against you know, risky collateral. So this rule would have prevented Silicon Valley Bank from ever getting into the position that it found itself in at the beginning of 2023. Whereas if you look at the big banks in the US or the UK, actually they already are met, they meet, they meet this rule by and large because they have large deposits with central banks, they have liquid assets, and they have assets against which the central bank is willing to lend. So if this rule, um, you know, I describe it essentially as the central bank acting as a pawnbroker. It's going to lend cash against a promise of collateral, which is risky. Uh, and it will only need to do that for a short period in most cases. And then the bank gets the collateral back and the central bank is repaid the cash it's lent, like a pawnbroker. So the... That this rule would obviate the need for excessively complex regulation, which we have at present, and would eliminate a major risk to all banks, which is that they have this, I call it the alchemy of the banking system. It's, you know, the banks are consciously taking risks of having short-term funding to fund long-term assets, which are risky. And the reason we do this is that over the centuries, we have found that if we have a banking system like this, we can fund risky investments in businesses or households for mortgages at a lower cost than would be the case if everything had to be financed by equity investments or private equity, whatever. So this is a positive feature of a market economy, but it has this one week that it's very vulnerable on occasions to a crisis and people panicking. And we don't yet have an answer how to prevent or deal with panics if they were to arise. And I think the scheme I've described would do that. What's to stop it being adopted, Mervyn? Just to, to finish, I know it is, it's theoretical and it sounds it sounds sound, sound, if that makes sense. But in terms of it being adopted, what's stopping it? Is it willingness? Is it the fact that groups like SVB are doing something which they view as innovative, where they were holding a lot more short-term assets? Why won't this rule, why hasn't this rule been adopted? Well, I was asked when I produced the description of this this proposal in 2016, would it ever be adopted? And I said, well, 
not now, but after the next crisis. We had a mini crisis in 2023, and I was struck by how much interest there was in this idea from the United States where the crisis occurred. That's elsewhere, but particularly in the United States. I think that this idea of getting banks to pre-position collateral with central banks is growing. Both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are doing this on an increasing scale. They haven't formalized it in terms of a simple rule, and that means they have not got the benefits of eliminating unnecessary complex regulation, which I think would be one of the great payoffs. There is a deal to be done here. That deal needs to be put on the table, I think, to get the banks to sign up to it. One of the difficulties with all this is that the banks themselves, particularly the big ones, and many of the regulators feel that they have to be part of a global consensus about the nature of financial regulation. I think this is a mistake. I think you've seen already in the last year that a number of authorities, including the Bank of England, have sent that that maybe foreign banks ought to be separately capitalized and be proper UK subsidiaries so they can be regulated in the UK. And if that was the case, then you could impose this rule on UK subsidiaries and UK banks. So, I, it's, But it's also, it means regulators having to admit that much of the complexity of the system they put in place is unnecessary. Um, and we can move to a much simpler system. I think then banks themselves might see the attraction to all this. Comes back to that inability to admit some mistakes for the longer term benefit and unpicking what's already been done, I guess. Like, um... yeah, and I think there is a basic principle which goes way beyond finance and banking here and covers all reforms of government policy, which is a big reform is often easier to implement than a sequence of small steps where you get winners and losers. The only way to get to a situation where you can argue that everyone's better off is by making a big jump to uh, a better system. And that's true of the tax system, and it's true of banking in this area as well. I appreciate we're at time, Sir Mervyn, but I was going to ask, I mean, it's probably going to lead, it would lead to another 30 minutes, which was going to be linking it back to football without going <laughs> directly to Aston Villa. But I did appreciate you talked about regulation within the finance of football as well. And I was listening to something about the, Saudi Arabian League, Saudi Pro League on the way into work this morning. And the finances there seem to be completely um, disrupting all the financial models. And I know your piece has mainly looked at sort of the, the English structure and the way that the, we are losing teams in some cases because of finances. Can I just ask you your views on that? It, it, how much has that progressed in terms of we have seen this summer, the money in football has gone astronomical. We've seen players moving for hundreds of millions of pounds constantly. And the finances of clubs are more under pressure than ever before. Does there need to be a regulatory change in football as well as finance? Yes, it does. I think it's a complicated and difficult issue. Um, on the one hand, the quality of football played today is much greater than it was 30 years ago. And much greater still than it was 50, 60 years ago. And that's because of the greater amount of money in the game. It's attracted more people into it. It's managers are paid more. People that spend more on the use of technology. Pitches are better. Trading is better. The way in which players are cared for and medically has improved. All of this has raised the standard of the game. And anyone watching a game today will realize it's much more entertaining and fun to watch than it was even 30 years ago. 
So that's the benefit of the amount of money. The downside is that um, competition gets destroyed unless you have some sort of level playing field. And our American sports have resolved this issue by having a closed league with no promotion and relegation and rules to compensate people, teams that came at the bottom the previous year so that they can yeah, the draft back to the top teams in the future. And that creates competition. You know, I'm not sure if it creates the same sort of loyalty of my fans, but it's you can see that it, that, that does exist in the US. Um, and that system is a viable model. Um, and, of course, the unit is the league and not club there. Now, in Europe with football, it's much more difficult because most American sports are not global sports. They're American sports. So you have a set of rules that applies to the American league. They don't have to worry about whether it applies elsewhere. And what we see in soccer now, obviously, is that Saudi Arabia has decided that you know, we can throw vast amounts of money at various sports. They've done it with golf. They want to do it now with football. And they're going to try and build up their own league, maybe buy the World Cup in future. What does all this mean? So you saw the proposal in Europe for a Super League where clearly a number of top teams wanted to follow the American model. Uh, and they had a you know, set of teams which were going to cut, cut themselves off from the rest of the European leagues, um, have the best players, most money, TV rights, etc. And that failed, uh, not because of any legal impediment through competition, um, but through the reaction of fans, uh, popular reaction around European countries that this was a group of teams deciding that they wanted permanently to be in the top group. It would mean that no team in that top group could ever aspire to be in it. And this was against the ethos of football, where surprises, whether it's in domestic competitions or international lockout competition, these are the essence of the sport and rejuvenate the sport all the time. It, new players, new teams. Uh, and and it failed for that reason. I suspect that they, they'll come back with another proposal which permits some degree of promotion and relegation. And we have not seen the end of this. After all, in England, when the Premier League was set up, that was something which the English Football League strongly opposed. Uh, threats of legal action, competition authorities. That's all forgotten now. It turned out to be incredibly successful. And the regulator of the British game, the Football Association, has faded in, almost into oblivion and is not an effective regulator at all. So uh, the question is, what is to be done? And ultimately, if you've got um, a competition in which anyone around the world uh, can legally acquire a football team or football players to take back to their own country, they're going to suck the talent from other countries. And in the end, you know, you end up with the lack of competition, um, same team winning all the time. If all the best players end up playing in Saudi Arabia, what do we do? Just watch Saudi Arabian Football League on Sunday afternoon? I don't know. But ultimately, the 
what's going to be needed uh, at all levels, I suspect, in the game is something to impose limits on the expenditure of clubs. It's very difficult to control their income. But a salary cap on players would be uh, not easy to impose if players can take up part-time jobs as um, you know, mentors to local teams and all kinds of things. But um, a, a salary cap on the team as a whole may be what needs to be done in order to limit expenditure and ensure a reasonable degree of competition in the league itself. Otherwise, what will happen is that ultimately um, you will get um, teams being, a few teams being bought by foreign entities, foreign nations. We've seen that already in the Middle East. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia has been intelligent about how it's handled the Newcastle position. It hasn't got in and you know tried to blow the rest of the Premier League out of the water. What it's done to do that has been to try to acquire players to play in the Saudi Arabian League. Um, but this is this is a disturbing moment, I think, and it requires some deep thought as to how. I think it will only come at present from the Premier League. I think the government ought to introduce a regulator. And in part, it's to ensure that we don't get, um, we, we need to maintain the integrity of competition among all the divisions of the Football League and the Premier League. And the biggest risk that actually is not the Premier League, it's the Championship, possibly lower, where owners come in, buy a team, gamble on trying to get promotion, and then they end up bankrupting their team. So a regulator, I think, is something that help, can help to protect the Premier League by preventing any money which the Premier League gives to the lower leagues from being misused. And that's really very important. But there is now a big challenge to the Premier League itself and indeed to other European leagues from the advent into the market of Saudi Arabia. And who knows, you know, maybe one day... China, you know, you don't think of the Chinese leadership as the kind of people who are kind of want to use all the money they've got to control world soccer, but they're likely to be worried about Chinese development. But if one day one of them decided that they became president and wanted to use money to acquire the world's leading football, they could offer them a rather pleasant lifestyle for two or three years in China and a salary way beyond anything they could earn uh, in Europe. Uh, and of course, with its concerns about short careers and injuries, it's understandable that players will respond to that. Not men and players for accepting a more lucrative offer. Well, no, I, I think that. I mean, they did. I know China did try it in 2015, and then they, the government backed away slightly. But it's very easy to sit here and say I wouldn't accept 700,000 pounds a week for moral reasons, but I'm not the one being offered it. So it's a very different environment. It is. Mervyn, thank you very much. Thank you for speaking to me today. It's very nice to talk to you and we covered a huge amount of ground. So thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Very nice to talk to you.